Alright, would you all pray with me? Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for being a God who, um, whose eyes roam across the earth to see whose heart is steadfastly yours so that you can support them. And uh, Lord, we, we want to know you. We want to be um, not just in right relationship with you, which we are through Christ, but Lord, we want to be enjoying your presence and your person deeply so we ask you to come we ask you to speak to us through your word we ask you to help us as we as we desire Lord and attempt to align the things that we think and the things that we feel and the things that we do to align those things with the truth of your word so God we ask you to speak a word as only you can do that we might know you and might exalt your son more. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I wanted to start with a show of hands as to who did all my assignments from last week, but we're not going to do that because, um, yeah, I don't want to shame anybody. But we, uh, this last week, I got to take uh, I got to take Judah and Josh and Joe and Eli was there. <laughs> Never forget about Eli. We got to go stargazing, and it was really fantastic. I don't know if anybody got if, if that was the seeing assignment that you took from last week, but if you didn't, you should. These things are fun, and fun is good. So says Dr. Seuss. You should go. Well, we did, and um, as we as we observed. The heavens, which are declaring the glory of God, and asking asking the Lord to help us be seers. Two interesting things occurred. First off, Judah kind of got a little frightened of the dark. He seemed a little shy. I'm like, hey, what's going on, bud? This is glorious. And he was like, well, it's dark out here. It's scary. We're in the woods and we're watching. And so, you know, got to explain that, like, darkness is a plan of God. And it's there so that you can see his handiwork in stark relief. The darkness just serves so that you can see the light. So relax. Jesus is Lord over the darkness. Um, but the second thing that, that was really, really interesting, and it's a great setup for our text for today, is we saw, so usually in my history, as I've looked at constellations or stars, usually you're lucky to see a satellite. It's like kind of a rarity. You... Uh, if you're looking at stars, you just see one, not like the, you know, the blinking plane. Those are easy to spot. But like what looks like a star, but it's migrating about yay fast across the sky. It's a satellite. And they're somewhat hard to see because, you know, depending on how close they are or how fast they're moving or what. But usually you're lucky to see one. We saw, all, I don't know how many. Eli, how many? Joe, how many? Josh? Uh, satellites. Satellites. Oh, five. We saw at least five. Had to have been five. Okay. So, then the question occurs: Why? Why so many satellites? Now, conspiracy theorists might jump in and say, "Well, because the you know they're coming for us." Okay, maybe. Um, but part of the reason I think that we saw five satellites is because 
whether they realize it or not, men are doing what God made them to do in Genesis 1. What we're going to see today is God's making of man in his image and giving him an astounding purpose and blessing and scope of what it looks like to, to be a man alive with two legs, to borrow the phrase. So, this is what we're going to do. We're going to um, look through the way in which God creates man, and then I'm going to have some um, exhortations for you at the end. Okay? So, by the way, I didn't consult any thesauruses or uh, synonym finders. These are just the words that sum up a surmised um, each point, and they all happen to be O and D. I think I did look up the last one, so okay, there you go. All right, the first word that, uh, that I want you to write down, if you write in your Bible beside verse 26, write the word deliberation. Deliberation. Read verse 26 with me. After you write the word deliberation beside verse 26. The, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth deliberation this is fascinating thus far in the creation account what have we seen god doing we've seen him commanding it's all imperative light be and light is let there be this and there was that let there be an expanse there was let there be uh, let the waters be gathered and dry land appear and it was so let there be creatures let there be plants everything that god is doing he's commanding he's commanding he's commanding and everything springs into being in order to obey until we get to verse 26 where god leaves off commanding and he starts contemplating he lets us into the internal dialogue between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He leaves off commanding, and now he is contemplating, showing us, readers, his people, that when God made us in his image, he's not just doing any old thing. He's doing something that is mind-blowing right here. Okay? I do want to uh, point something out to you that commentators lose their mind over. It's the plurality in God. Then God said, let us make a man in our image after our likeness. Okay? And a lot of commentators um, uh, look at that plurality and they don't want to see uh, Trinitarian ideology there. Because they would say, rightly so, Moses never heard the word Trinity. Moses wouldn't, wouldn't have known what is meant by the word trinity and they are spot on accurate there but what moses was observing when he when he interacted with god is absolutely in no uncertain terms a triune god this is without question the internal dialogue within the godhead father son and holy spirit talking with one another contemplating that we're that we're let in on this internal dialogue that God is making us in his image, okay? Um, this is, uh, so he's, we're, we're listening to our God and our creator and our maker talk with himself about what he's about to do in creation. This would be like 
if you could get in a time machine and go back in time and listen to your Preggers mom and your extremely pumped dad talk about and plan for what kind of kid is this going to be? Now, the breakdown of the illustration is they're asking questions. What, kind, what are we going to do? What, what kind of kid? Is he going to have red hair or not? Are we going to name him some Irish name? What, what are we going to do? It's all questions. This is not. This is contemplation of what God himself is going to do when he makes man in his image. It's amazing. It's an astounding thing. The imagination of God is, de is defining who we are. So our God and Father, Son and Holy Spirit, infinitely perfect in holiness and love, is caught right here scheming for your good. John Calvin said it just amazing statement. He said, man was rich before he was born because of these words. Let us make man in our image. Listen to the voice of your father. This is what I'm making when I'm making man. By the way, I meant to tell you in the first and I skipped right over it. What I, the whole purpose of today is to give you, to show you where to root the belief that your life has meaning and dignity. I'm assuming that there are some in this room who know my life has meaning and dignity. I'm assuming that there's probably some people in this room that are not quite sure if their life has meaning or dignity. But I know for certain that among those who know, yeah, if you say, does your life have meaning and dignity? You would say, yes, there are at least some of us who, if I were to ask, why? How do you know that? You're one of a gajillion. Surely you can't have meaning and purpose to your life. Where do you say, yes, I do, and this is how I know? That's the purpose of this text, to help us to understand what, it, what are we here for? Do we have meaning? Does life have a purpose? And it starts with the deliberation of our triune God that says, I will make man. We will make man in our image. It's the deliberation of Almighty God. Secondly, right beside verse 27, the word determination. Determination, beside verse 27. So, you have internal dialogue where God is deliberating what he's going to, how he's going to make man. And in verse 27, he determines things about man. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. These are irrevocable determinations that God makes. They're not fluid like our culture wants to believe. So God created man in his own image. That's number one. That you are not cosmic accident. You are not random product of time and chance happening on matter in the process of being governed by the survival of the fittest. That's not what you are. That's not who you are. If that is what you are, and if that is who you are, you have no meaning at all. None. But God created you in his image. God created man in his own image, male and female. So what does this mean? It means a number of things. There's two, two big ideas that I want to talk to you about. One is the image of God. And I want to talk to you about three things about God's image. First off, that he created man in his own image, male and female. So first off, that they are utterly distinct from all other parts of creation. Okay? Man is utterly distinct from all other parts of creation. Remember I told you in Genesis 1, maybe the most important distinction that, that human beings can grasp hold of 
is there, there are two types of beings. There's God and there's not God. Do you remember this? Y'all remember everything I tell you. There is God and there is not God. There is maker and there is everything that has been made. And man is very much below the line as creation. But because we bear the image of God, man is, we're in the not God, not God category. But here, man is seen as a creature that though he is not God, he might easily be mistaken for one. That in all of creation, man is this distinct, utterly unique creature. Um, so think about this with me. We're created in the image and likeness of God. If you were to think, if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, you're a Christian, what's the most important thing that I would know about God? If you were going to give me an, an adjective or a characteristic about God um, that I need to know, knowing nothing about your God, what is it about your God that I need to know? You might say any number of things. It's a tricky question. You might say, well, God is love. You might say God is sovereign. You might say God is gracious. You might say God is good. You might say any number of things, but do you know what the scripture overwhelmingly says more than any other description of God? He is holy. Holy. He is not like anything else that you could ever imagine. To whom would you compare me, says the Lord? What, what would you point to and say, this is like that? Nothing. There's nothing like this God. And so, when he creates man in his image and likeness, he's putting something in creation that... I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to press heresy here, but man, as a part of creation, is holy in the sense of unique, not like anything else. You'll never see an orangutan pan back and go, huh, why? Why is that? You know what? That's beautiful, and I want to paint a picture of it. Never in life will they do it, because they do not bear the image of God. They don't have mind, uh, reason, will, affections. They, they have feelings, they have sensibilities, but they don't have what we have as God's image bears. Um, so they're utterly, man created in God's image is utterly distinct among creation. Secondly, massive and massively important that man is in charge. Man is utterly unique in all of creation and that man is in charge. What is most important about God? He's holy and he's sovereign. These are his spoken words. This is the Probably the first thing that we learn about God is that his word defines reality. He is absolutely in charge and he makes man in his image and let them have dominion. That's what he speaks over man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Do you know what dominion assumes? It assumes lordship. It assumes authority. So... Man is not just in creation along for the ride. He is a king with a domain as the image bearer of God, uh, male and female. So he's utterly distinct from all other parts of creation. He is in charge and extremely importantly, he is plural. Man is plural. He is male and he is female. And we're going to see next chapter how God is going to take this plurality in wonder of wonders, he's going to take plurality and he's going to make it unity. Does that make sense to any of you Trinitarians that there's one God eternally existing in three persons? 
plurality with absolute unity and now he makes man in his image male and female distinct and different and yet united in one man is plural male and female so genders are part of what it means to bear god's image which is why faithful christians have two simultaneous responses to an ideology that's going on in our day uh, called transgenderism you guys are ultra familiar with it which by the way let me say this um we uh it's a it's a it's commonplace in the church to be experts on the sins of yesteryear that like when we gather i'll rant and rail about the evils of race-based southern slavery or something that happened a long time ago which it's evil and we should repudiate it we should say it was evil it was terrible then it's terrible it would be terrible now if it existed but the problem is we have a whole host of other sins that have us by the throat that the church does not like to talk about and this is one of them. And so faithful Christians from these verses in our culture, faithful Christians have two simultaneous responses to the idea of transgenderism, that gender is fluid, that you might have a different gender than is reflected in your body. The first is sadness. The first is sadness. Faithful Christians, when they hear that, they are saddened by it. Saddened because they believe, because there are people out there, listen to me, that are believing a lie that Satan is telling them. And it's like he's dangling a lie and they're reaching up with two hands and grabbing hold of it so that he can pick them up and drop them into a meat grinder. Are, do, are we angry at those people? No, they're believing a lie from their enemy who wants to see them literally destroyed. So we're saddened by that, okay? They're believing a lie that, that gender is accidental, it's meaningless when it's really planned and purposeful. It's a good part of God's design. So anybody who's never experienced the soul devastation that flows from believing a lie that our enemy has told cannot possibly have the type of compassion that we need to have when we think about someone struggling with gender dysphoria. Suicide rates through the roof, suffering, human suffering. There's, there is a soul issue. And so we're saddened by that. We don't hear about trans, somebody struggling, like a kid struggling with transgenderism, and we don't respond with anger at them. But there's a second response that we ought to have, and it's an odd mixture of anger and humor. So we are saddened at, at what this lie is doing to human beings, to image bearers of God. But then there's also this mix of, of anger and humor. If I'm looking at a person, this is an important distinction. Looking at a person who's struggling with gender dysphoria, there's compassion and love. I want to help. I want to help them understand that they were created in God's image and that they are exactly how God created them to be. But if I'm looking not at a person but at an idea that gender might be fluid, I need to mock that to scorn, just to, to laugh it out of existence. I was in a hospital room this week with a dear sister who was filling out uh, the hospital forms. And the question is, are you male? Are you female? Are you trans male? Are you trans female? Are you, are you non-binary? Are you... There were like nine options. And do you know what she did? She laughed it to scorn because she's hard-hearted and she doesn't like people. No, she's a, she's a woman, I promise you, who would weep with, counsel with, serve, pray, love, adopt, do anything to help 
anybody struggling with this with this mental illness, this lie that Satan has told that they're believing, she would love them and they would know it. They would feel it. But when she's looking at the idea on a piece of paper, she's doing what she ought to do. She's looking and saying, that emperor is nude, if y'all follow the, um, the old myth. It's a kid. It just looks out. Everybody's praising the emperor's new clothes. And the kid looks out and says, your epidermis is showing. Uh, you're naked. And that's just, I mean, we should laugh at you because you did this to yourself. Okay, so an odd mixture of humor and anger. Anger. Why? Why would we possibly, uh, why would we possibly care that, that kids are being told that their gender is fluid? Why would we care about that? Well, we care about that because gender is part of what it means to bear God's image. It is God's name that is being sinned against in these ideas. It's not just that they're being, uh, that they're being sinned against, which we care for that deeply. But ultimately, we care for that because they are created in the image of God. And when somebody messes with them, they are tampering with the image of God that's being born in them. Okay? So, this is a, uh, when we think about, right, Old Testament idolatry, we think about um, the, the joke that, um, that one of the prophets tells where, like, uh, he says, you know, this same woodcutter goes out and he hacks down a tree and then he takes half of it because he's tired and he's cold. He takes half of it and he starts a fire and he bakes bread and he warms himself and he eats. So half of it provides for him. And then half of it he fashions into a deity and then he prays to it. And, and we all look on and we laugh at that and say, how, how silly could you be? But part of the, the thing that we don't grasp in our culture is understanding that, that idolatry like that where you're praying to a shrine or you're uh, you're doing um, honor to uh, to a carved image, is that they were not equating the divinity with the image, but rather they were saying that the the image is the representative of the deity. So it's not that Baal is right here. It's that Baal is out there somewhere, and this is a representative of that deity. And so if I honor this, I honor Baal. If I, like Gideon, should have done, tear this thing to the ground and burn it with fire, I've dishonored Baal. Now, think about this. Man is created in the image and likeness of God. And so, as a wise man once pointed out, we have, we're in a nation of rebels that wants to rebel against their maker, their God, but they cannot reach Mount Olympus because the heavens are so much higher than Mount Olympus. So they can't go to where God is and poke him in the chest. So what do they do? They attack his image here. They dishonor the representative of God. Faithful Christians love God and we love our neighbor. And transgenderism, among other things, is a conscious or unconscious dishonoring of the image of God and man. And it is a brutality against our neighbor. And so we abhor the idea while remaining loving towards those who are infected with the deception. Does that make sense to you? That the the complexity of our response to that issue because um, we're going to have to respond. We have to respond. We have to know how to walk through those things. So there is deliberation. Let us make man in our image. There is determination. I'm going to make him man. I'm going to make him genders, male, female. I'm going to make him in charge. I'm going to make him utterly unique in all of creation. All of these things. Okay, now verse 28. Write the word delegation. This is glorious. Uh, the other day I woke up 
And uh, has this ever happened to you where you wake up and you just feel like you're completely disconnected from God? You're like, I know God loves me principally. I know the gospel. I know the Lord Jesus came to rescue me. But I feel in my soul just disconnected from the Lord. And so I'm laying there in bed, pray, Lord, I don't want to feel disconnected to you. I want to feel connected to you. I want you to know that I want to know that you love me. I want to know that that I'm that I'm right with you. And this text came to mind and it's so glorious. Listen to this. Verse 28. God does something astounding. First off, he blessed them. He blessed them. But he's about to pronounce all these good things over him but over them, but I want you to see that to bless, to bless something is the opposite of to curse it. So you have three options. You can leave it alone, you can curse it, or you can bless it. You can say, good on you, good to you, may, may good go with you. So he blesses them, and then listen, he does something that he's never done before, these verses. God said to them, to them. Every other time God looks at something he makes, he looks at it and he says something about it. He blesses, um, he blesses the, the sea creatures and the, and the birds, but he talks about them in the third person. If you look, God created in 21, God created the sea creatures, every living uh, creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds. So he takes, he's not talking to them. He's talking about them to presumably himself. Let the birds multiply on the earth. But now that he has made man, he has made a creature that he intends to relate to. And so he says to them, he blesses them. And then he says to them because now there's a being with whom he can relate God made you image bearers to relate to him. And this is what he says. As he blesses them, he says, be fruitful. Now think about that. Be fruitful. Second, multiply. Be fruitful, multiply. What is that looking at? Be fruitful. He says to this naked man in a garden with a naked woman, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What is he talking about? You know what he's talking about. It's glorious. Don't add, multiply, fill the earth. So listen, it's a far cry from overpopulation concerns. Uh, we, were, we were in Houston, and that, which is packed full of people. And we, because we're in the country, we look at that and say, would not want to live there. But let me ask you something. Is the problem the people or is the problem sin in those people? Like, what if everybody in Houston perfectly loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved their neighbor as themselves and just lived to be a blessing to everybody? Where would you want to be but Houston? And pack me in close to everybody. Sin is the problem. It's not, it's not people. Overpopulation is not, a, is not a problem. It's not an issue. It's that people are prideful. People are stingy. People think that resources are sparse. And so fear drives us to be sinful creatures but listen in the beginning it was not so god looks at one man and he looks at one woman and he says my blessing be upon you be fruitful multiply and fill this thing i've made you a huge domain now make offspring and fill it up to the gills it's amazing it's amazing now 
He blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Subdue it. This is such a cool command. What does subdue mean? Think about this. It's, it's a word that we hear all the time, but you may not have put it in its context and asked, why is God telling Adam and Eve to go subdue the world? Isn't the world already subdued? Isn't it already theirs? This word, some synonyms here, bring into bondage, to force, to dominate, to tread down. So listen to me. Creation was born good, but it was born wild. Man as master is commanded to go forth and conquer it, to subdue it, to win it, to bring it to heel, to break the horse, as it were. So it's super important. You're going to, as you, as you work, do life, we all know what it means to have a failed attempt, to have death, to have weeds, to have thorns and thistles vanity in our work. Um, all of these things are effects from the rebellion of man coming in chapter 3. They're effects of sin. Thorns, death, sickness, all these things. Effects of sin. But listen to me. Hard work is not an effect of sin. It's what we were made for. It's what we were made for. To rise up in the name of our Creator and to do what He tells us to do. And what He tells us to do is to subdue the world and have dominion. God commands a radically hard thing right here. Think about this. Two people. It's almost like when Jesus tells 11 doubting men, I want you to go disciple the nations. What Adam and Eve should have said here and what those men should have said there is, we'll try, but we're going to need some help, right? I'm, I'm saddling you with this impossibly difficult task so that you will know what it is like to work in my power. Last blessing that he speaks over them, delegating to them. He says, have dominion over. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over fish, over birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, Have dominion. Man was created in God's image to rule the world. So listen to me. Start to finish is about God's rule of creation through man. That's the point. We lost it in the fall. Jesus comes as the new and better Adam, not to do something totally different, but to rule the world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So it's, it's about rule. Right beside verse 29, the word delight. These last two will go fast. Delight. This is such a cool thing that God does for us. Watch this. Verse 29. So after he's blessed them and given them their marching orders, he says, And God said, Behold. So he, want, he calls their attention. Behold, I have given. Just let that sink in. I wish it was in all bold. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. And then I wish this was in bold too. You shall have them. Think about that. I have given, therefore you shall have. There's no condition here. I've given, and as long as you... No, I've given, and therefore they are yours. Uh, so it's been said that money doesn't grow on trees, but listen, everything else that man needs does grow on trees. Absolutely everything. 
a lot of you Sunday school guys are saying, well, not everything grows on trees because we need like redemption and grace. Yeah, guess what? It grew on a tree. It was, it was made available to you when Jesus was nailed to the tree. Everything that God, I have given and you shall have. And he doesn't just give here. He just gives trees. He gives everything that man needs to survive and to do uh, and to enjoy life. And he's going to give so much more in the end. So there's delight here in our giving God. And lastly, the decree. Uh, so uh, right beside verse 31, the word decree. So he says in, uh, at the end of 29, you shall have them for food in 30. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw, this is 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God pans back and he sees for the first time in, uh, that we're told in, in Genesis 1. Every single day he's created something and he, and he looks at that thing. I make light and I'm going to look at it. I make creatures I'm going to look at it. I make man I'm going to look at it. I make uh, birds, fish, I'm going to look at them. But now on day six he's done. He's made his masterpiece the Lord of creation. He's made man in his own image. And now he pans back and he sees this whole huge thing and he makes it a universe. He takes all of these various parts, these disconnected facts and things, and he makes them a universe. One, he turns the many into one. And he looks at all of it and he says, it's all very good. It's the first very we get everything is good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then he sees everything and he says, behold, it is very, very good. Okay? Now, three applications, and I'm done. Number one, we need to develop a God-centered anthropology. A God-centered anthropology. Um, why, to repeat myself, why are we not drinking the transgender Kool-Aid? It's important that we not drink that Kool-Aid, but Why? It's because man was created in God's image, male and female. Because it has to do with the image of God, not because we're hurting people or just man is, uh, is at stake here. Man was made in God's image, male and female. Why do we hate abortion with every bone in our body? Because those babies bear the image of God like every other human being created in the image of God. Why is the greatest commandment to love the Lord... And the second greatest, which Jesus says is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that the case? Well, it's because my neighbor was created in the image of God. It's not two things, but one. To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means that you would say, wait, you've made an image of yourself? You've created man in your image and likeness? If I'm going to love you, I have to love them as well. It's all rooted in the image of God. Let me ask you this. Why do we refuse to make any graven images? Because God has already done it. And he has said, you can't do it. I did it for you. And what I did was man. God has already done it. Why do we live to take dominion on this planet? Because God has made us in his image. And to quote a wise man, the Bible establishes the gulf between God and man. And then he bridges the gap with a man who is big enough to be a mediator who fills the gap. His name is Jesus. And Jesus came in no uncertain terms to be Lord of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth 
was given to me. So develop a God-centered anthropology of everything. Why are you politically against that? It needs to be because it has something to do with God and his image being born in men. Secondly, do hard things. You were not made for comfort. You were made to conquer. Okay? You were made to conquer. This is something that is killing uh, is killing us in our culture is that we think that comfort, we're, we're created for comfort, and so we pursue comfort. And especially, I would like to speak a word to you, uh, to you young guys, that like any time you come and say, you know, I, um, I'm going to marry, I'm going to marry that young woman over there. You're going to have a myriad of people saying, well, that's going to be really hard because you're young and poor and stupid. <clears throat> yes, it's going to be hard. If you've been married for more than 20 years, raise your hand. Was it hard? Has it been hard? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's good, but it's hard. But when we see a young guy saying, I mean, I want to pursue that gal for marriage. A lot of people will come in and go, ah, but it's going to be hard. So just respond. So what? I'm created to do hard things. Somebody comes and says, I want to start a business. I've got a, I've got a plan to start a business. Um, wise people are going to come to you and say, don't do it. It's going to be hard. Maybe they won't say don't do it, but they're going to say it's going to be hard. And if you have done it, have known it's hard. So what? Do it anyway. Which, by the way, to you young men, that's why you need a radically God-centered bride. Who, when you say, I'm aiming at Christ, and so I'm going to do this hard thing. And that might very well mean being in Jesus for the next 10 or 15 years of our life. It might get really dicey. You want to marry a wife who's going to say, I'm game as long as we're aiming at Jesus. Hardship, I can deal with. I can't deal with purposelessness or cowardice or meaninglessness. Lead me somewhere. You want to marry that girl who's got courage to follow you. So let me say, especially again, to, to young guys, you are commanded in Scripture to honor those with age, to honor those uh, father, mother, to honor those in the church with age. But listen to me. If, there's, if there are older folks that have been beat down by failure or whatever, and when they hear that you're going to attempt something hard, and they come in with counsels of prudence and say, oh, maybe not, it's going to be hard, love them but disregard them. Do not listen to them and let them undercut work that God is calling you to do. To those of us who are older, to those of us who are older, don't nick works in the bud. When you see a young man say, I think I can do that. I've got an idea. Like, like imagine what that would be like if instead of we get to the end of our life and we just sort of coast, we get to the end of our life and say, God, I want to be the, I want to be the most important person in the first chapter of a young guy. And when I hear somebody say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do something that I'm going to come alongside and say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to advise you. Okay. So do hard things and say, I'm looking forward to the help of almighty God. Three, thirdly, lastly, delight in being what God has made you. Listen, the money in this verse, not there's money in the verse, but God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Let me ask you something. Why doesn't he ask your opinion? Here, do you think it's good? He doesn't go to man and say, Adam, what do you think? Do you think this is good? Why don't you look at this and assess it? Do you know what God says? He says, it is 
Good. And you know what everybody else in creation has to say? Yeah. Because your word defines everything. And so we get to delight in being what God has made us. Listen to me. Sin is very real and it has marred things for sure. But you still bear God's image. And in Christ, you're being renewed into that image once again. The problem is that you are looking with your eyes and not with your ears. Say that again. Tattoo it on your face. Never forget it. The problem is that you are looking with your eyes, which is what Mother Eve did, instead of looking with her ears. But what did God say? What did God say? You assess with your own categories and you come up short every time. Meanwhile, your creator looks at you and the world that he has made for you and the difficult task that lies ahead of you and the eternal joy that you will know because Jesus came to mend everything, and I mean everything. God looks at the world and he looks at you through his son, Jesus Christ, and he says, behold, it is very good. So close your eyes and open your ears and believe the word of the Lord concerning himself and concerning yourself. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you have left undone. Now, if Jesus isn't your savior, then you'll die for what you've done. and You'll die for what you've left undone. And so it absolutely does matter. But Jesus gave his body and he gave his blood for us. He is the new and the better Adam who subdued and therefore rules all creation. He was fruitful. He multiplied. He filled the earth. He subdued it. Listen to me. He has dominion over all of it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He did this by his perfect obedience, by his death on the cross and resurrection. He did this by his essential uniqueness in all of creation as our mediator. Jesus is Lord, and in him, you are pleasing to the Lord. Jesus is Lord, and in Christ, you are pleasing to the Lord. This is a table of delight, because it is a table where we remember and believe that what the Father says of us is what is true of us. And in Christ, he calls us good. So come remembering that Jesus never tries and fails. He's never done it. He's never attempted something and come up short. Never, ever in life. He accomplishes everything he intends to accomplish. And he came to accomplish your eternal redemption. And God be praised, mine too. So believe him and come to him right here. Welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, we'll sing, and then we'll celebrate together. Father God, would you help us to take you at your word, to, to look with our ears and not with our eyes, that we would trust your assessment of everything, infinitely more than our assessment or Satan's assessment or the assessment of others. And so especially at this table, would you send your spirit to help us, Lord, to look at things to discern the body of Christ, to discern our own participation in the body of Christ and to discern it after the manner of your speech, of your description of what is going on here and of what it all means, that we would come delighted to know ourselves created in your image and redeemed by your son so that we might be reconformed, recreated 
into the image of your Son. Help us to come, to come remembering and to come believing. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.